give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and an errant word from Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us through your prophets and apostles. Thank you for sustaining it for us through the ages that we may have it to hold in our own hands or, or to see on screens, to read words on a page. Thank you, God, for such a gift. And even more, thank you for the privilege we have that many don't to have your word written and even read to us in a language that we understand. But Father, we come to you this morning and we need more than physical hearing and understanding. We need spiritual eyes, spiritual ears. Oh Lord, we need our hearts opened by the work of your spirit so that you may teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us according to your word. Oh God, that we might be made more like Jesus, that we might be led to the foot of the cross and be able to say together, nothing but the blood. Of Jesus. Oh Lord, help us this morning. Help your people. And Father, help me, your servant. Protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. Oh God, you are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ernest Gordon was a British army officer and he was captured during World War II, and he was kept in the infamous Japanese prison camp on the River Kwai. In his memoir, which some of you may have read, titled To End All Wars, 
He recounts how he and some other prisoners who had escaped the camp with him and were going through the jungles there, they came across a train that was full of wounded Japanese soldiers and they were dying from neglect. Out of love for Christ, Gordon and many of his fellow officers came to their aid and they began to help them. They began to tend to their wounds and minister to them, these Japanese soldiers who were their enemies. One of the other officers who refused to participate in what was going on was deeply offended. What bloody fools you all are, he said. Don't you realize that those are the enemy? Gordon recounts that, of course, they realized this. It was exactly the point. So he tells the story of how he goes to this officer and asked him, do you know the parable of the good Samaritan? What he got back in return was a blank stare. So he proceeded to tell him the story. When he finished, the man said, but that's different. And he was angry. That's in the Bible. These in front of us are the swine who've starved us and beaten us. They've murdered our comrades. These are our enemies. Here's how Gordon responded as he records in his book. Who is mine enemy? Isn't he my neighbor? Mine enemy is my neighbor. As we continue our journey through the gospel according to Luke this morning, we have come to the same place where he took this other soldier, to this well-known, often preached, and almost always celebrated parable of the good Samaritan. It's a place that I assume many of you here this morning have been before, but I don't want to make that assumption. Perhaps some of you have never studied this passage. Either way, I encourage you, no matter where you're at in that journey, to come to this parable with fresh eyes, to come with open minds and open hearts, with great expectation for what the Spirit of God might have for you today. For even though we're a lot like that protesting soldier from this story Though we often try to draw lines of demarcation that define who is and who isn't our neighbor, we like to define our neighborhoods, as one commentator says. Perhaps we are much more like the man we meet in our passage this morning. Not any of those characters in the parable. Perhaps we're like the lawyer who were told in verse 25, quote, and you can see there, stood up to put Jesus to the test. It's not explicitly stated in the text, but it it seems clear to me and hopefully to you as we've been going through the gospel of Luke, that this account and also the one we'll get to next week, the one about Mary and Martha that follows this, they've been arranged in this order by Luke on purpose. They've been arranged to give living examples of what Jesus had just said back in verse 21. Look there, look there with me. 
Remember, Jesus is celebrating the return of the 72 and he's giving thanks to God for his grace and his mercy. But if you remember, it got kind of odd because Jesus began to thank his father for hiding these things. And what are these things? It's truths pertaining to eternal life. He was thanking God for hiding these things according to his gracious will. You read there, it says, hiding these things from the wise and understanding and revealing them to little children. It appears clear to me then that the lawyer in this account is an example of the wise and understanding one. And Mary, who we'll come to next week, the one who's sitting at the feet of Jesus, Mary's the example of the one whom God has chosen to reveal them. One who is like the little children. Luke is giving us living illustrations of the words of our savior that he's just recorded. So when we think of this lawyer, let us think of the wise and understanding lawyer. He stands up and he has the most notable of motives, doesn't he? I mean, hardly. He stands up to put Jesus to the test with a certain matter that concerns him. If you're taking notes this morning, and I know many of you like to do that, this will be our first of three points in our study of this passage. So number one, the matter that concerns him. The matter that concerns him. It's clear that this man is quote unquote wise and understanding because to be a lawyer in Israel meant that one was an expert in God's law. Not as the lawyers we may think of them today, whether your view is high or low, And there is a lawyer in the room, so we're going to think highly of lawyers, right? But either way, these are experts. Experts, not just in law or the laws of the land, but experts in God's law. A lawyer today would be like a Bible scholar or a theologian. He knew his scriptures and he sought to apply them to daily life. It would not be uncommon for a lawyer then to be present when a rabbi is teaching and to ask him a question about his teaching or to be one who's a resource to priests and Levites. They would go to him for consultation, much the same way pastors like me do with commentaries written by men much smarter than me. Say, well, what did they have to say about this passage? So in in one sense, it's not altogether surprising that this lawyer stands up to ask Jesus a question, maybe even to put him to the test. But what is surprising is what he asks. Or maybe even more what's surprising is how he asks it. You can see there, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. At first glance, it appears that the matter concerning him is eternal life. What does it take to live forever, Jesus? What does it take to live beyond this life? I mean, that's a fair question, isn't it? A question that is likely on the mind of each and every person who's ever lived. Perhaps it's even on your own mind this morning. But is eternal life itself really at the heart of his question? I don't believe it is. 
Instead, what really concerns him is found in the word do. That little word do. What must I do? What work must I perform to inherit eternal life? I mean, he asks the question and even follows up as if there is one single good deed that would alone gain salvation for him. He sounds very much like the sentiment of his day. And it's a sentiment captured in a popular teaching that he would have certainly been familiar with, these mishnas, these these teachings of the rabbis, which they would study and look over. And this is the saying, I think, that could have been the slogan for that day, recorded by one rabbi. He said, great is the Torah, or great is the law, for it gives to them that practice it life in this world and in the world to come. Great is the Torah. It gives to them that practice it life in this world and in the world to come. So what must I do? What's that part of the law I must do to inherit eternal life? I don't have time to go down this road, but perhaps you see also another irony here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to receive a gift? What must I do to get something that should be freely given? His focus is on earning. You know, it's very likely that this lawyer had heard a lot about Jesus. A lot of people in that day were hearing about Jesus, how he had healed the sick, how he had raised the dead, how he had even declared that people's sins were forgiven. Maybe he had even heard that Jesus had said, and perhaps, so this is conjecture, we don't know for sure, but perhaps he was present at the Pharisee's home when Jesus himself said it. Do you remember? That sinful woman comes to him and is cleansing Jesus' feet with the tears and her tears and her hair. And do you remember what Jesus said to that sinful woman in the home of the Pharisees? You can mark it down and read it later. Luke 7, 50. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Such would be a concerning matter for any scholar of the day. Your faith has saved you? What? That would be nonsensical to this lawyer, especially given this woman's lack of adherence to the law. You see, the prevailing thought of the day would have been, Okay, so go and do these things that you've neglected and do them and do them and do them. Then by doing them, it will be evident that you have faith. And then if you keep doing it, you will be saved. That's what lawyers like this would have expected to hear. Great is the law, for it gives to them that practice it life in this world and the world to come. This matter that concerns him is a matter that concerns even many people today. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the sad thing is not that they ask the question. It's just that they ask it the same way. What must I do? What's that one magic bullet? What's that one thing that I can do that would be necessary for me to be regarded as a good person? 
What can I do so that I can be in heaven, even if there is such a place? Do you know people like this? As long as I'm good, I'm good. All is good. You know, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't shy away from this question, does it? It actually brings it to light again. Notably, you might think of the Philippian jailer asking Paul the same question in Acts 16. What must I do to be saved? You just told me to be saved. What do I have to do? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Paul tells him. But did you notice that Jesus doesn't answer the question the same way that Paul does? Instead, Jesus asks his own question. And you can find his question there in verse 26. Let's look there again. He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? What does the law say? How do you interpret it? So the answer that he gives, which we'll look at in a minute, is not only correct, but it reveals something even more. It reveals what he believes and what comforts him. And so that's our second point this morning, the belief that comforts him. Let's look at the belief that comforts him. And this comforting belief is found in his answer in verse 27. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The law expert quotes correctly from the law. He pulls together Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. He puts them together, even just as Jesus does in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, when he is asked, which of the commandments is the greatest and most important? In fact, in Matthew 22, 40, this is what Jesus says to answer that question. When he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, which that's shorthand for all the Old Testament. From beginning to end, all of it depends on those two things. You see, it was a prevailing notion that the sum of the 10 commandments could be made in this way. The first four commandments were dealing with our relationship to God. And the last six were dealing with our relationship with each other. Duty to God, duty to others. Or maybe as we say today, love God and love others. Perhaps then it's like today, it's a creed, right? Love God, love others. But take note of Jesus' response in verse 28. Look there again. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All right, Mr. Lawman, you've got it right. That's it. Do it and you'll live. Or not to completely geek out on you here, but very literally, if you were translating the tense of the verb from the original Greek language, it's actually keep doing this and you will live. Not do it one time, keep doing it. In fact, it points to like keep walking in ongoing, continuous, undeviated obedience to this and you will live. At this point, you'd think this guy would start to sweat, right? 
You think he'd be like, whoa, 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 okay. But what does he do? He just keeps pushing. Look at verse 29. We get a little view into his motive. Desiring to justify himself. Say, hey, Jesus, who's my neighbor then? What's he after here? What's he after in this effort to justify himself? Is he just trying to save face? You know what that means, right? He's, he's just trying to let the whole thing drop. Oh, well, you know, who, who's my neighbor anyway? You know, it's kind of a polite way to ask the question, you know, like, oh yeah, yeah, we, we obviously need to talk about this some more. We need clarification and maybe some precision here about this whole neighbor thing. It's not as simple as it sounds. <laughs> okay. Or perhaps... Perhaps there's a little conviction going on here and he's trying to justify his subpar performance, especially on the loving the neighbor provision. Maybe he thought he could do so if, if Jesus could maybe limit the scope of neighbor the way many Jews in that day did, the way that we like to do today. You see, the Jews had limited their neighborhood to only other Jews. They defined it, only other Jewish people. And that's how they were able to make it more manageable. And either way, managing God's expectations in that way, they were doing that as a source of comfort, right? They believed that if they could narrow and define God's expectations for them, then it would be easier to do what he had commanded. You see, for them, control was comfort. Well, that makes me squirm. How about any of you? If I can just control what I think this means and set up some measure that I can attain to, then okay, good, then I'm good. Let me manage God. Let me put God in a box. Let me put the expectations that God places on us. Let us just put all of this in one simple, neat little package and then, and then make a checklist out of it. And then boop, 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 I get it, I'm good. Does that resonate with anyone here? Or is it just us type A control freaks? like myself, I think it hits home for all of us. It goes without saying, God can't be managed like that. If you're still trying to do that, you know that your labor is in vain. But let's see, even if you could, what comfort is there to be found in the words that Jesus says to him? What comfort can be found? Okay, then keep doing it and you will live. Dale Ralph Davis shares the story of a friend of his who was telling him about his ordination exam that he took before presbytery. That's the local gathering of churches and the elders and pastors were there examining this man uh, for ordination. And uh, of course he got slammed with all kinds of doctrinal questions, but somewhere in the midst of the question, somebody stood up. There's always this guy in every exam, and I'm glad this guy's there. And he just asked them, how do you feel about the Lord? Tell me about your daily walk with the Lord. I know what you think about justification and sanctification and all this other stuff. Do you love the Lord? He recalls to Dr. Davis, I, I said to the whole court, I love him with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. And then he went on with his exam. Well, later that day, a very prominent theologian who had been there as a visitor that day uh, decided to come up to him 
And he walked up to him and he said, son, you're a liar. You lied to the whole court this morning. You need to repent. Now, this professor wasn't being nasty. He simply wanted him to realize that what he said he was doing was impossible. It's impossible. The man recalls to Dr. Davis, point taken, and I repented publicly. Can any of us truly make such a claim and claim to do so completely and continually without failure? Let me ask it this way, as Christians, if you're here this morning and a follower of Jesus, are our wills constantly bent on obedience to him? Are our minds ever focused on adoration of God? Are our emotions always stirred with warm affections for God? Not even for a minute, let alone 10 minutes or 10 hours or 10 days or 10 years or all the time. And I'm not even gonna begin to explore the innumerable ways that unworthy motives come into play when we're loving our neighbors. We are abysmally deceived if we think that verse 27 is somehow our solution or our comfort. Just as deceived as the lawyer who found his comfort there and sought to use his obedience as a way to justify himself or literally to make himself righteous. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this. He knows that, yes, the law teaches us how to live in obedience to God. But Jesus knows that the primary use, one of the primary uses we can say of the law is to bring us to a point of despair, to break us down and serve as a tutor a tutor that comes alongside of us and shows us our sin and leads us straight to Jesus and leads us to a saving faith in him. So he presses, Jesus presses the matter even further, this time with a story, a story most of us know, but it's a story that corrects the lawyer. This brings us to our third and our final point today, the story that corrects him, the story that corrects him. We know this story as the parable of the good Samaritan. One of my favorite commentators calls it bad news because it's used by Jesus as a sort of mirror, a way for the lawyer to look and truly see himself. You know, I already read the story, so I won't rehearse all the details of it. But as the story proceeds, you know, he and the rest of the audience that were there that day would likely form certain expectations. You know, the priest and the Levite, you know, these are the religious all-stars of Judaism. And yet, as Jesus tells the story, he says, when they see the fellow Jew lying on the side of the road, they just passed by. And it is a fellow Jew, he's coming down from Jerusalem just as they were coming down. That means they had went up to worship, okay? So they just see him 
and they just pass by. Now, there's, in their mind, probably reasonable excuses for this. Uh, this stretch of road between Jerusalem and Jericho had a nickname. Uh, it was called the Bloody Way. It was a very treacherous landscape. Uh, it was a lot of places there for robbers and bandits and thieves, okay, to hide. And they had basically made a living, quote unquote, by ambushing lonely travelers. You had to be really careful when you pass through here. So perhaps these men were simply afraid to be victims themselves. They had their heads on a swivel, right? And they were watching their environment and they may have thought he was dead. So let's just keep on going. Well, that's really important because if they are truly the religious all-stars of the day, another excuse could be, well, if that person's dead, then I can't touch them or I'll be ritually unclean. I'm a Levite. I'm a priest. I'm a, I can't be unclean. So I'll leave it for somebody else. Well, that's really interesting because they're coming down from Jerusalem. And even if they, as the law that day said, that if your shadow touches a corpse, you're unclean. So, I mean, even if they're worried about that, yes, they had to go through purification rituals. It would have taken about a week, a week, a week. Talking to you, Western Americans. Oh man, I think a week. They're feeling the same way, right? All the pressures of everything they have to do. But no matter what their excuse may or may not be, those are terrible. Those are terrible excuses. It doesn't sound like they're going to such great lengths to love their neighbor as themselves. And here's a neighbor. They've even defined a fellow Jew as a neighbor. And yet they found reasons not to do it. Well, as if the audience and the lawyer are already having a hard time digesting this, here comes the real shocker. Look at verse 33. You can almost hear the gasp. Put yourself in their sandals. But a Samaritan, <gasps> as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. I mean, if a priest and Levite strike out, the worst the lawyer might expect would be to hear that a, another Jew, a Jewish layman, proves the hero but a Samaritan? Now, already in this series, we've detailed the prevailing attitude that Jews in this day had against Samaritans, and suffice it to say, it wasn't good. Samaritans were enemies. They were deemed enemies, not neighbors. But it's the Samaritan who has compassion. I was thinking about our context today and reading what other people had to say. And I mean, it's, it's like saying that an Islamist extremist stops to help a Christian who was wounded in the terrorist attack. Or perhaps why I shared at the beginning, a Japanese soldier was tended to by an escaped English prisoner of war. It's shocking. Whatever the case, it's clear what Jesus is doing. Jesus is showing that the priest and the Levite in the story personify, and actually he's saying the lawyer does as well, they personify the prevailing religion of the day. They show its deficiencies and its hypocrisy, that for all of its sacrifices and all of its prayers and all of its devotions and all of its fasting and all of its ceremonies, all of its just one thing to do, it can still be on the whole cold, formal, excuse me, formal, lifeless, and dead. In a very profound yet corrective way, Jesus is saying 
that if loving your neighbor as yourself has anything to do with eternal life, it's clear that you do not have life because you don't know the law and you don't love. The Samaritan, on the other hand, the one whom they regard as the scum of the earth, and as one Jewish author said, the manure pile of God's creation. Jesus is saying they'll go into the kingdom of God before you do. Ouch. Scandalous. I hope you see then that Jesus sharing this story is not just to stand up the Samaritan as a mere example for the lawyer in this account. He's not an example to him. The Samaritan's actually a critic. And he's a critic for all of us. And I'm amazed at how often that point is missed. I mean, we rush to moralism, right? We rush, just tell me what I have to do. We rush there. We want, we want that golden piece of application, right? We want to be able to, to walk away with our five steps to be a better neighbor. When that's what we come to the text looking for, not hungry for the gospel, we spend so much time focusing on who we are to be helping in order to be just like the Good Samaritan that we miss altogether, that this story is first and foremost not to show us what we're to be doing, but to point us to our great inability to do what is required of us, especially if we think that doing something will lead to salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. You have to use this text, this occasion, to reflect on questions, right? Right? Hopefully you think of questions like, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Or maybe we should ask ourselves, how am I correctly defining my neighborhood? Let me rephrase that. How am I incorrectly defining my neighborhood so that I can leave people out? Or maybe we should ask, what is following Jesus' command to go and do likewise look like? How can I show mercy to my neighbor? I mean, I would be, as your pastor, I'd be disappointed in any of us left here this morning without considering such important and probing questions. But you know what? I would be infinitely more disappointed in is if you left here this morning and you missed the actual central point of this passage. There's always many layers of application to a passage. And that's why it's so great. I can ask one of the elders to come up and preach this passage next week and it'll sound like completely different. You'd be like, I've never heard that text before, right? That's not the beauty of the treasure of God's word. But allow me to aim that arrow right at the center, right at the center. And the central point is not to show us what we need to do but it's to show us Jesus. And no, not to show us that Jesus is the true good Samaritan. This is an exercise in allegory. That would be, as one commentator put it, too little praise for him. The mercy that Jesus showed to us is far greater. When he came to our aid to give us life, we weren't merely lying on the side of the road dying. We were dead. 
dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus came out of his way to help us, not just crossing the road by chance where he was already going, but no, he traversed the infinite distance from heaven to earth. He left the glories of heaven and came here. And what he did for us cost so much more than money, so much more than time, so much more than convenience. It cost him the sufferings of earth, of taking on flesh. It cost him the blood of his body and the agonies of his soul there upon the cross of Calvary. It's amazing to think that in love, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. The good Samaritan of this story is but a glimpse. Perhaps we would call it a shadow of the glorious love and glorious mercy that Jesus has shown to us. If not for his sacrifice, if we were left to gain eternal life based on our ability to love God and love our neighbor, if it were truly up to us, where would we be? Just like the lawyer, without any hope at all. We are unable to love as we ought. We are unable in our flesh to love God and to love others as we ought. But thanks be to God for the hope of the gospel, the real imputed righteousness of Jesus, right? That becomes ours when we cast ourselves completely upon him, confessing and repenting of our sins, trusting in him and him alone. It's his work that makes it possible for us to live in heaven with him for all eternity. That's where our hearts and minds should be. Not our love for God and neighbor, but his love working in us and through us by his spirit to God and to our neighbor. Do this and you will live. That's the actual heart of this passage. Do this and you will live. These words are one of two things to everybody in this room this morning. For those of you who are like the lawyer in this account, those who are seeking to justify themselves, these words should be a terror to you. Because listen, you simply cannot and you will not be able to fulfill the law's demands. Strive as you may, you will never achieve eternal life in your own effort and on your own terms. You cannot and you will not. But for those of you here who are following Jesus, who see very clearly the gospel path to Jesus that these words afford, for those who know the wounds of the law that drive us to the cross, those of us who have come to him and believe in him by grace and through faith, these words remain a wonderful reminder. Why? Because when Jesus says, do this and you shall live, we say, okay, yet not I, but Christ in me. You do it through me by your spirit and you get all the credit and you get all the glory. And so then this chorus rises from us and I get to hear it from you as I share life with you. And we sang it together earlier. Could endless striving now make me righteous? 
Could all my works now grant me hope? Oh, hallelujah, the blood of Jesus. My only plea, my only boast, Christ is all. May it ever be. Amen and amen.